Turn with me now. Turn with me now to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This is found on page 1658 in your Pew Bible. 1658 in your Pew Bible. 1658. Revelation chapter 3, reading verses 7 through 13. Hear now the word of God. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet, and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, that no one may take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we come now to the second part of this two-part message, the letter to the church in Philadelphia in which Christ commends the faithful missionary church. Christ commends, he praises, the faithful missionary church. We're continuing our series, as you know, in this whole book of Revelation, in which we see the glorious Messiah, Christ, reigning over the seven churches, and then each church considered in order, and either commended, only Smyrna and Philadelphia, or condemned. Last week, I think I said it was Sardis, so please correct your notes if you have notes on that. Smyrna and Philadelphia. Smyrna is back in chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. So, either commended, praised completely, or although encouraged, also condemned and challenged and called to account, as is true of the other five churches. But today, Philadelphia is one that is only praised. As we noted last week, the, uh, in terms of the city, it comes, its name, Philadelphia, uh, came as a result of Attalus II, 2nd century B.C., who showed great loyalty to Eumenes and was therefore called 
brother lover. So Philadelphia, as we know, is the city of brotherly love. It was a missionary city rather than a military city with a lot of military force and soldiers. Its purpose was that of propagating the Greek culture, of spreading Greek culture and society. It was rather successful in, in its endeavors. It was located on an important route to the interior of Asia Minor. It was a place that was full of earthquakes, particularly one very shocking one in A.D. 17, and there was much suffering through the aftershocks. We still think of the great uh, earthquake of San Francisco of 1906, and the great devastation even now, 100 years later, we still think about that, the great devastation caused to the city of San Francisco. And of course, there have been aftershocks in more recent days, as you may recall. Once during a World Series game about 32 years ago, and the, the place started shaking. And so you can imagine living in Philadelphia, sort of like living in San Francisco. Now, notice again, as we, as we noted last week, verse 7, we have the introduction to the text and to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia, right? We know what that means. The writing of this, putting it in writing and putting it to those who are responsible for giving the message of, uh, to the church. Notice, he who is holy is the one who is saying these things. Jesus, or, or holiness, is an essential trait of God. And Christ's holiness is in opposition to Satan and those who followed his synagogue. He's also not only holy, but he's also true, for he is truth itself. And then, of course, he's also the one who has the key of David. Last week, we looked at Isaiah 22, and Eliakim, Eliakim, who would have the key of the house of David on his shoulder. The key of the house of David on his shoulder. Key symbolizing authority. He's, of course, of the house of David, as Christ is of the house of David, on his shoulder bearing that burden. He was to be a firm fixture, Eliakim was, like a peg, like a, you know, like you stick a peg in the, in the wall in which to hang your, your hat or your coat, like a peg, but even this peg would be cut off. But of course we know that the greater son of David, namely the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who is, who will stand firm. Last week we also considered the whole idea of a key and the whole and the notion of opening and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. So you know what you do, children. You have you have something uh, a door that's locked, and so you take the key and you you unlock that door. Or if you want to secure that door, you take the key and you lock that door. That's that's the figure that you have here. And the point here is that Jesus is the one who opens and no one shuts. When he opens a door, no one can possibly close that door. And when he shuts it, it is shut firm, and no one, can, no matter how much strength you have, no one can possibly open it. That's the figure here. And so it's in that context that we looked last week at the whole idea of blessing. Jesus here says, verse 8, I know your deeds. And in this case, what a comfort that he knew... And he knows everything about us. He knows all the good. He knows all the bad. But here 
Isn't it great to know he is, when he says, I know your deeds, it's in order to praise them, to commend them. He says specifically, I have set before you an open door. No one can shut it. You remember that Philadelphia, the city, was a missionary city. It was there to spread the news about Greek culture. And of course, all the things, the Greek philosophy, the the pagan gods, the Greek gods, all of that, the Greco-Roman world, the wisdom of this world was there to spread that. Like we have today, academia, which also spreads a message, not a true message largely, but it spreads its own message. Academia, college, university, faculty, these are folks who spread a message from their worldview, their perspective on what the world is all about, and they are missionaries, as it were, for what we would regard as a false worldview. The same with the media, with the news organizations. Many of them have very much a false understanding of the world, and therefore how they tell the story, how they tell the news, is going to reflect that. The same way with entertainment. And children, I want you to listen to me now. Please remember that when you are watching a movie, watching a TV show, there is always a message behind it. And so the people that, that produce the movies, that produce the TV shows, the entertainment you see on your, on your uh, smartphones and things and on television, many of these messages are false. They, they, many of the, the things that are being portrayed reflect a false view of reality, a false worldview. And so uh, the city of Philadelphia, like we have in terms of the media, in terms of academia, in terms of the entertainment industry, in terms of our general culture, was also spreading the false Greek understanding of reality. But the church, by contrast, the church in Philadelphia was a missionary church, meaning it was spreading the, the gospel, it was spreading the true message. And the Lord Jesus himself was saying, I'm the one that's going to open the door for you and no one's going to be able to shut it. So we've got a great opportunity to preach the gospel. That's part of what is being said here but also God's grace creating willing hearts and opening the door of people's hearts, as it were. And so we see the, the blessing, what is the causes, a little power, both Smyrna and Philadelphia were commended, who were commended, were noted for their smallness, just a little church, or just a little manifestation of the kingdom, and yet they had great power. God knows how to take the weak things and use them for his own glory. They kept my word, he says. They obeyed me. They did not deny my name, whatever temptation they had faced. Perhaps a particular temptation was in view. Notice the superiority, then, that they would have. People who, um, th these people who opposed the false Jews, the pseudo-Jews, the so-called Jews, and those of the synagogue of Satan, why those that the folks in Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia, opposed, those folks who were opposed would bow before their feet. And it's quite possible here that 
when it says, I will make them come and worship before your feet, it could very well be that the, the point here is that the worship is given to God, to Christ, but that they will offer that before the very feet of these people whom they had hated so much. And so the blessing then, they bow before your feet, and notice also the end of verse 9, it's because Jesus himself loves these faithful ones. Jesus loves us. Jesus loves me. This I know. So, we then come to the perseverance. The perseverance. This is the cause, verse 10, because you have kept the word of my patience or perseverance. Have kept the word. Have, have been faithful. Thy word of my patience or steadfastness. They kept the word, the word of Christ, even through all sorts of trying situations. Because you have kept my word, Jesus says, I also will keep you. It's the, it's the same verb, interestingly. So Jesus is saying, because you've kept my word, you've hung on to my word, I also will hang on to you. But here, it's in the future. I will also do it. So from this time and going forward, I also will hang on to you. I also will keep you. And indeed, he will do that. Notice what it says in the middle of verse 10. From the hour of trial, or out of the hour of testing. Now don't think, then, that the Philadelphian church was going to escape persecution. That's not what Jesus is saying here. But what he was saying is that the Lord would keep them in the time of trial and preserve them so that they would come through. That's the point. See, trials are going to come. That's why, you know, Jesus in, um, you remember in uh, Matthew chapter 13, when he told the, uh, the parable of, the, uh, of uh, the, the one who sowed the seed, the sower of the seed. Remember what he says there, verse 20, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. And you see, that's, that persecution, that trouble, is a universal experience for all those who name the name of Christ. So it's kind of like you take a piece of, um, you, you take a piece of metal, you're going to test it in the fire. You're going to see what is this metal made of? How, how strong is it? Or, or, you know, in terms of purifying it, we're going to test it. And so that's true of all of us. We're all going to go through difficult times. Don't think, children, that being a Christian means you're going to, that your life is going to be wonderful and like on a beach or anything like that. It's quite the opposite. We're all going to go through times of trouble and tribulation. And there are going to be times when your faith is going to be tried, when you're going to go through these difficult times, and that's a time where you're, you're going to have to say, do I really talk? Do I really trust God to bring me through whatever this, this trouble or this temptation is? And so Jesus here in Matthew 13 is saying, look, there are times when there are people who go through that, they give every indication at first of being genuine Christians, but what happens, it's like the seed on stony, ground, on stony places, 
He has no root in himself and only and endures only for a while. Because when that tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, the word of God, immediately he stumbles. You see in Isaiah 43, in Isaiah chapter 43, in Isaiah 43 and verse... Isaiah 43 and verse 2 God says when you pass through the waters I will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overflow you when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned nor shall the flame scorch you so God doesn't say you're not going to go through high and turbulent waters flood waters doesn't say you're not going to go into fire but what it's saying is, I will be with you and I will bring you through that tribulation. And that's what he's saying here in Revelation chapter 3. And so out of that hour of testing, out of it, I also will keep you. I will preserve you. I'll make sure that you pass that test. Notice also that this hour of testing, interestingly, is about to challenge the entire earth. So with all those blessings then, I know your deeds, I'm giving you the open door, people are going to recognize at some point that you were right, and also I'm going to preserve you, to give you perseverance. With all that blessing now that he, that he pronounces upon them, he now secondly comes to these exhortations or these commands, if you will. First of all, he says, hold fast. Hold fast. Now, we see this in verse 11, but there's a prologue. There's, a, there's an opening statement to this because he says, behold, lo, behold, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. Now, let me suggest that this phrase does not, in this context, refer to Christ's second advent. That is to say, does not say, talking about the, what we refer to as the second coming of Christ, the final coming, if you will. Rather, the Lord was going to come quickly and deliver his elect. In other words, it was a reference not to the end of time, but it was a reference to one of those comings of Christ in history. And it appears that that's what he's saying. I am coming quickly. This phrase, by the way, would tie in nicely with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, I'm, I'm not sure I bet the farm on this in terms of the dating of Revelation. There are those who believe that Revelation was written before A.D. 70. There are those who believe it was written maybe around A.D. 90 or 95 after the destruction of Jerusalem. But if, in point of fact, Revelation was written before the destruction of Jerusalem, A.D. 70, you can see how nicely this would tie in, especially because he talks about those who are Jews and aren't really believers in the true and living God, those who are of the synagogue of Satan. It ties in nicely because as that event, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, would shame the Jewish opponents into submission and or conversion. But nevertheless, whether it is reference to that or a reference to something else, Jesus nevertheless is saying, I am coming quickly, that's what you have. 
hold fast, hold on what you have. This was the exhortation to the church in Thyatira, verse, chapter 2, verse 25, but hold fast what you have till I come. And even so, here Jesus is saying, hold fast, hold fast, hang on. Or we, say, we could say, keep on keeping on. In what regards? Let's specify some examples. Keep on believing. Believing. There are many temptations for us not to believe. There are many temptations for us to turn our backs on the true and the living God. But Jesus says, keep on believing. And he also says, therefore, keep on trusting. Not just believe, but also trust. A belief in that, that even deeper sense, perhaps. Keep on trusting. Trust that I'm the one that's going to hold you by the hand. That, that I'm the one who's got you. I'm the one who will walk with you through the, the high waters and through the times of fire. And keep on doing. Keep on keeping on. Keep on doing what you're doing in terms of your, your faithful witness as a missionary church. And do so in order that, in order that, purpose cause, in order that no one take your crown. In order that no one take your crown. Now I'm sure that you have heard the phrase, once saved, always saved. Once saved, always saved. And there's a measure of truth in that. But that can be somewhat, that can be somewhat deceptive as well. Because really, the doctrine that we want to emphasize is the perseverance of the saints. You see, people who say, once saved, always say, well, I walked the sawdust trail, I, I went up at a Billy Graham crusade, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, and therefore I'm good to go. But that's not the way the Bible looks at this whole idea of persevering, of keeping on, keep, keep on, keeping on, you say. It's that you actually do persevere, that, that you're continuing to grow in your faith, that you're continuing to fight the good fight of faith. And so that's why Jesus is saying here, keep on keeping on, hold fast, in order that no one take your crown. Crown, of course, is, a, is pointing to eternal life. It's pointing to our reign with Christ. Crown also indicates victory. It indicates fighting that good fight. As, as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 and 25. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, under self-control, in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Now, I suppose it's possible that the Braves might actually win eventually. They might even win the World Series. Who knows? I suppose they did. Of what eternal significance do you think that is? Children, someday those, that trophy and all those goods are going to be burned up when Christ comes back. What good is it going to do? So you have all the 
thousands of fans cheering on the, all the players, giving their all. You have all the millions of dollars at stake, all of that, right? Of what purpose is it? Let's do it this way. Which is more valuable? I want you to think about this. Which is more valuable? The World Series trophy or your, you, children being a trophy of God's grace. It is you being a trophy of God's grace. Not only because it's for the glory of God, but if you are a trophy of His grace, you're going to live forever. And those silly trophies will be burned up someday. And those who gave themselves over, I'm not saying all fans, but those who gave themselves over to sports as their God, what do you, where do you think they're going to be? You see, that's what, that's what um, Paul is saying here. Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate, exercises self-control in all things. They do it. The athletes do it to obtain a perishable crown. But we, in running the race of life, we, an imperishable crown, one that will last forever. But you've got to fight the good fight of faith. This is what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4. As we read today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And of course, that's really the, that's really the point, isn't it? See, when we talk about fighting the good fight, finishing the race, keeping the faith, what's the point? It's because we love Jesus and love his appearing. If Jesus were to come back in the next two minutes, would we be glad or would we say, all the things I didn't get done in this life? See, we all have to ask that question, don't we? Do we really love Jesus and do we really love his appearing? And so, John here, or Christ here, is saying, keep on keeping on, because when you keep on keeping on, it's because you are loving me, and you're one who loves my appearing. And when you fight that good fight in that, on that basis, then you'll have the imperishable crown, a crown of victory, which no one can take from you. Let him hear, we see in verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just like Matthew 13, 9. If anyone, who, who, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear. And so here Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, we have then the blessing. We have these exhortations, hold fast, and let him hear, let him hear. And then finally we have the promise. Notice the promise he says here, verse 12. He promises 
a pillar. A pillar. And this, of course, is to the ones who, he who overcomes. He who is victorious, he who overcomes, Jesus says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Now, children, you know what a pillar is, like a column. You see a building, a great big building, maybe a courthouse or state capitol building, and it has all these columns, it has all these pillars outside, or maybe inside as well. If you go to uh, Glacier National Park in Montana, and you go to, to the lodge there at Glacier National Park, built around 1915 by the Great Northern Railway, you go into, the, into where the lobby area is, and there, the pillars, you know what the pillars are there? They are trunks of trees that are like about two and a half feet across or so. They couldn't cut them down today. But anyway, but those are the pillars in there. Many times, of course, you, they would be of stone rather than of wood. And so a pillar in a temple would, of course, be something that is sturdy, especially in a building like a temple. Now, what's interesting also is, as we look at this historically, you remember the, um, that earthquake that we talked about in AD 17 there in Philadelphia? Very well be that the pillars of the temple that were erected to Germanicus, praising him as if he was a god, it may be that there were pillars of that temple that were the only things left standing in the city, or would have been among the things still standing in the city after that devastating earthquake. And even though the cult then of Germanicus may have died out and the temple fallen into disrepair, it's quite possible that the pillars would still be there. It's possible. Um, and so it could be that as the people in Philadelphia heard Jesus' words here talking about a pillar, they may have had a memory of or an awareness of that temple and its pillars there in Philadelphia, in the city of Philadelphia. Although, as we will see in a moment, I think even more than that, he's talking about different set of pillars. Maybe he's contrasting the, the temple of Germanicus, the fact that it's in ruins, because the Lord Jesus, of course, is the one who directed the earthquake in AD 17. It could very well be that, that the ruin of that temple, and maybe just with a few pillars still standing, contrast with the temple of God that he's going to refer to. Notice that he says, I am going, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. In other words, the one true and living God. And yet, we then, in the pillar, in, as a pillar in his temple, are living pillars, like living stones, as Peter says in 1 Peter 2. You are living stones. You ever seen a living stone, children? I haven't. A stone is a stone. Isn't that interesting? that we are called living stones, living rocks, if you will, living stones. So we've got the analogy here, we've got the picture here of stones or pillars. What an amazing thing. And, and you know, we, we find this also in, um, we find this also in Psalm 144, where the psalmist says, that our, that our sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, 
that our daughters, are you listening, young ladies? That our daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. So not only the, the strength, but the beauty, young ladies, your beauty in God's temple. That's what Christ wants for you, that you would be his pillars in his temple, sculptured in palace style. And so we find here then that this, that he promises, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. This, of course, was David's desire to remain in the house of the Lord. Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I, I desire and seek to obtain, that all my life I may live in the house of the Lord. But this terminology would have been quite significant for people who themselves, perhaps, and whose ancestors certainly had been forced to go out from the city due to those earthquakes decades before. They would have remembered that or they remembered stories about that. And Jesus is saying, if you follow me, if you're an overcomer, I'm going to make it so that you are a pillar in the temple of my God. And not only that, but you won't have to wander out into the countryside out of fear for the earthquake. And so a pillar, but also a name, indeed three names. For Jesus says, and I will write upon him, as part of his promise, I will write upon him three names. Or we could say they are thrice sealed, three sealed. He first of all says, I will write upon him the name of my God. I will write upon him the name of my God. And this, of course, is what is symbolized, is it not, when we have baptism. So when the water of baptism is sprinkled upon you, children, older people, when it's sprinkled upon you, the minister does what? He places the name of God. This is a symbol. Just because you're baptized doesn't mean you're a Christian. But it's a symbol of what Jesus does in a spiritual way. I will write on him the name of my God. Not only that, I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down out of heaven from my God. The new Jerusalem, the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. An identification then of the church as God's people. Notice that this is new. It's new because it is God who does the work in creating this. It is new as it comes down then out of heaven from my God. And notice also Christ's new name. Notice also Christ's new name. So the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem, and I will write, Jesus says, I will write on him my new name. The name that he received as mediator and savior. He is. He is Jesus. He is our savior. He is our mediator. He is our go-between. He is Jesus. He is the rose of Sharon. He is the bright and morning star. 
And Jesus, you see, is promising this to those who are the overcomers. So I have two points of application. The first is this. How are you doing in terms of keeping Christ's word in all kinds of difficult situations? And here, I'm, I'm not just thinking about the big matters, like in terms of persecution by the world and those kinds of things, but also the small matters, such as frustrations. Frustrations, irritations. I'm certainly not perfect in such regards, but yet we are called upon to, to hold on to the word of Christ, in all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of troubles, all kinds of tribulations. So how are you doing then in terms of keeping Christ's word in these difficult matters? But then, secondly, I urge you to look to Jesus Christ as the one who opens and shuts doors. Look to Jesus as the one who opens and shuts doors. He is the one who has the keys. He's the one who has the keys. He has the keys on his belt. He has the keys. He has the keys of heaven. He has the keys of death and hell. He has the keys of the kingdom of David because he is David's greater son. The one in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. He, he is the one who turns those keys in accordance with his sovereign power. He is the one who opens doors and no one can shut it. When, the re when revival breaks out, and we pray that it will soon, when revival breaks out, no one can stop it. The world can't stop it. The president can't stop it. The devil can't stop it. No one can stop it. When revival breaks out, because he is the one who opens the door, and no one, no matter how hard they might try, can possibly shut that door. His peg is never removed nor cut off. And he opens and shuts doors. Listen carefully. He does so as a result of and in accordance with his atoning sacrifice. It's not just that he's God. He is the God-man. He's the God-man. He's the Savior. He's the one who died and arose again and ascended to glory. And it's on the basis of his, the declaration of his being the Son of God with power, Romans chapter 1, on the basis of that, that he is the one who opens and shuts doors. Sometimes he does shut doors. Sometimes he does shut doors. Where are these churches today, Asia Minor? How many churches are left in southwestern Turkey? None that I'm aware of. Sometimes he does shut doors. When people rebel, when people are sinful, when people go away from him, when people turn their back on him. Sometimes he shuts doors. He could be shutting the door on this country, who knows? But he is also the one who opens doors. And as we are the faithful missionary church, then by God's grace, we will see him open those doors so that 
no one will be able to shut them. Amen. Amen. Will you please stand for prayer? Amen. Now, our Father, we pray that thou wouldst be pleased to apply this word to our hearts. We thank thee, Father, for Philadelphia. And we pray that as the church, we would be like the city, the city of God, a city of brotherly love, brotherly and sisterly love. We pray for that. And so work in its work in our presbyterio, God, to accomplish those things. Pardon us of our sins and bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.